Okay, so today's topic, naturally occurring food toxins. You know, we talk about a healthy diet, but what does that really mean? There is virtually no food that you can name that does not have the potential of being toxic at one level or at one level of intake. You know, historically, what they teach us in chiropractic school and in medical school, uh, most professional health types of uh, diplomas and degrees is that everything is toxic to a point. It's only the dose that separates the toxic from the non-toxic. I mean, even water is toxic. A large amount of water, something between five or six liters, if that's consumed in a relatively short time, let's say two to three hours, that is actually toxic. And one of the reasons why too much water is toxic, what's called the pathogenesis of water intoxication, is because it causes something called hyponatremia, which is low sodium or diluted sodium. And that can cause a life-threatening condition known as cerebral edema, seizures, even death can result from too much water. And like water, too much of a good thing such as vitamin A, can have a very acute toxic effect upon the liver. And that results in what's known as hepatotoxicity. Vitamin A is a fat-soluble nutrient. It stores too much in the liver, and then the liver becomes inflamed, and that's hepatitis. So this is a hypervitaminosis of vitamin A, or chronic high levels can produce a pro-oxidant effect. Let me say that part again. Vitamin A has a weak antioxidant effect at one level, but at another level, it's actually a pro-oxidant, which is very often damaged. Let me give you another example. Something as innocent as licorice, when consumed in large amounts, may be harmful. For example, a condition known as hypokalemia, which can lead to heart attack or cardiac arrest, has been reported in people who consume excessive amounts of licorice. And there's a fancy and very difficult to pronounce term for licorice intoxication, and they, it's dubbed glycerinism after the glycerizic acid content, which is the active component of licorice. And the thing about it is that glyceritic acid resembles a very important hormone in the body known as aldosterone. So when one consumes too much licorice, it causes what's known as a pseudo-hyper-aldosteronism, a kind of a fake high aldosterone because the body cannot tell the difference between glyceritic acid and aldosterone in the body. And this hyper-pseudo-aldosteronism caused by too much licorice suppresses a very important system in the body known as the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis, resulting in the loss of potassium. 
And that also causes blood, bre- blood pressure to skyrocket. It'll take roughly 100 grams or so of licorice a day but to, to cause this type of problem. But you have to realize that the amount of any substance that might be toxic varies based on a number of factors, not just the amount of the substance that you take in, the amount of vitamin A, the amount of vitamin C, or the amount of licorice or water, but also the individual that is consuming these things and that individual's ability to detoxify the particular potential toxin we're talking about. You know, this is why I spend so much time in my shows going over a lot of what I call holistic health fallacies or, or just lies. My Detox Lies program, which you can listen to on my website at intmedny.com. That's intmedny.com. It's under the blog section. Talks about ways in which we can truly detoxify a toxin and then ways that are said to work for detoxification but do not work. If I leave you with just one piece of knowledge by the end of the show, it's actually just this, is that the way in which a particular toxin is detoxified is based upon at least the toxin or toxins in question and the particular circumstances of that individual's health. So for example, if you have hypervitamin Aosis from too much vitamin A causing hepatitis, you can drink all the spirulina you want. You can consume all the N-acetylcysteine you want or EDTA chelating detoxifier that you'd like or all the milk thistle that you'd like. You will not affect hypervitamin Aosis. The only way to detoxify that stuff is to stop taking it. And when it comes to water and the toxic effects that water has, the only way to reverse those toxic effects are to stop the excess water intake. And depending on how bad the individual is, let's say they have cerebral edema and are hospitalized, they'll be given intravenous medications of different types and also electrolytes. So each toxin has a particular or one or more agents that may detoxify it. Now, I want you to stick with me here because what I'm doing right now is, gonna, is giving you a, a list or, or a preview of many different types of toxins that you're exposed to potentially every single day. And most people never know that their health problems are caused by these toxins. Even when you visit seemingly qualified physicians or natural healthcare providers, they often miss some of these basic toxic issues. I had a woman who had chronic migraines for several months out of nowhere. After a careful review of her lifestyle and various changes, it turns out that she, in fact, was consuming excessive amounts of licorice and caused a condition known as pseudo-Cushing's syndrome or a hyperadrenal condition by taking too much licorice. And she caused a very extreme hypertension, which nearly caused the stroke. Another way of thinking about how a particular potential toxin could be a toxin is the concept of reverse effects, meaning that one nutrient at one level may have health benefits, extreme health benefits, 
and at another level may be entirely toxic. I'll give you an example. Vitamin C. I've mentioned this before on some of the shows. Vitamin C at a level of 1 to 2,000 milligrams does not at all help cancer once you have it. But vitamin C levels in the 15,000 gram dose and higher acts not as an antioxidant, but as a pro-oxidant, and that can kill cancer cells. And the, and the reason that high doses of vitamin C that are high enough, they gotta be high enough, to cause a pro-oxidant effect such that vitamin C becomes a free radical in and of itself, called the ascorbyl radical, is that the high levels of vitamin C cause the white blood cells, the immune cells, to release large amounts of hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide breaks down cancer cells. Now, by the way, intravenous hydrogen peroxide itself doesn't work the same, but that's the topic of another show. And another word about licorice. An excessive amount of licorice can act as what's known as an endocrine disruptor, which means it adversely affects hormonal balance in the body. But when used at a dose that's appropriate for the individual, has the exact opposite effect. It can be a, an endocrine promoter of balance. So how do you know the difference? The way in which you know how much of something to take so that it doesn't become toxic in you is fundamentally based on, first of all, making sure that the dose of what you're taking is given relative to your lean body mass. There is lean body mass in your body, and then there is everything else, which is not lean body mass. The lean body mass is metabolically active, and that's what's that is what determines the metabolism of anything that you take. So if you have a lot of lean body mass, you probably have a higher tolerance for different things to become toxic, but you also probably have a higher need for different um, nutritional compounds such as vitamin A or water or vitamin C or licorice for health effects. And, you know, there's something uh, very misleading right now when you read about uh, public health and social agendas. Now, public health agencies that regulate food intake, they have been, um, I guess you can say, more proactive in, in food toxicology the toxicity of foods, and, and they're doing that by regulating or just outright banning, for example, trans fats, what they also uh, call endocrine disruptors, trans fats or endocrine disruptors in foods. And they do this because they believe it's on, it's on the basis of public safety. And they've also suggested removing um, various toxins, like potential toxins like, like salt. And the agendas of these different food agencies, though, lose sight of the basic principle of toxicology. Let me tell you what that basic principle of toxicology is. That the dose makes the poison. Now, that's what toxicologists will tell you, except it's only partly right. The dose can make the poison if it's high enough. 
but it's always the dose relative to the individual's ability to detoxify and manage that potential toxin. The problem, though, is the Federal Food and Drug Act, for example, they limit the amounts of potential toxic substances allowed in food. Uh, and what happened here is that there could be amount there could be there could be an amount of a substance in a food that they consider safe based on the amount in that food. But if you eat another food or two other foods or three other foods that also have so-called safe limits of potential toxins, you now are absorbing a toxic amount. And again, salt is a perfect example. In a particular food, there's a, an, a level of salt that, based on the serving size, is considered safe for the average individual. First of all, have you ever met the average individual? They don't exist. So, so much for science, basing everything on a 70-kilogram man or a 65-kilogram woman. But my point is, if you eat the whole bag of chips, then you have a toxic amount of sodium. There could be a certain level of mercury or arsenic in salmon. But if you eat two pieces of salmon a week or three pieces, you're already in a very toxic level. So the governmental agencies all have failed us in that they have made, they've taken a baby step in saying, well, this is what we think is an amount of a potential substance that we think a person can tolerate without getting disease. But we're not going to regulate their total consumption. I mean, after all, how could they? This is something you must do yourself. And I think that, you know, there's, there's labeling requirements by the FDA and they provide you and me, the consumer, with helpful information about the content of fats and carbohydrates and protein and potential allergens and caloric values, things like that. But the information about toxins that may be inherent, inherent to these foods, that in these foods naturally or formed in these foods during their processing may not be labeled. So I'm going to now review with you and illustrate the potential risks of various toxins when consumed at concentrations normally present in foods and what steps you can take and what steps have been taken by regulators to mitigate exposure wherever possible to these, these toxins. And I'm going to mostly emphasize uh, the Food and Drug Administration's legislation. Listen to this statement here. So this is from a legal paper. A food shall be deemed to be adulterated, that means changed, if it bears or contains any poisonous or deleterious substance which may render it injurious to the health or to your health. But in case the substance is not an added substance, such food shall not be considered adulterated under this clause if the quantity of such substance in such food does not ordinarily render it injurious to health. In other words, foods may have toxins in them, but if the naturally occurring amount doesn't kill you, then it's deemed okay. Except there's a, there's a lot of uh, room between health and death and then the disease part here where these toxins can cause issues, but they just may not be obvious. And then if you add, let's say, toxins in potatoes to toxins in tomatoes, and you add that up with toxins in celery, you might have a problem. So when I was reading the law on this, it talked about that if a food contains a poisonous or 
deleterious substance, it cannot be used as a food, which is a pretty broad statement. However, as I kept reading this legal jargon, it also said that the this in the second part of the section, it said, but in case the substance is not added, in other words, it was naturally occurring in the food, the quantity of such substance does not ordinarily render it in, injurious to health. So what that clause means, I believe, is simply that although toxic substances may be present in foods, the food is, if, if the food is not adulterated, if the amount present in the food is not ordinarily injurious, then it's not considered poisonous. So for example, there's a chemical compound known as tomatine in tomatoes. There are sorolins in celery or glycoalkaloids in potatoes that are normally present in concentrations that are not obviously harmful to people. However, in the event that these amounts are increased, such as through um, such processes as breeding and mishandling during harvesting, storage or transportation, they can become harmful. And then these foods are considered uh, to be adulterated. So many people I see think that they're having allergic reactions to their foods. And they never think for a minute about all the other toxins in the foods. It's really quite amazing to me because I have this deep knowledge regarding potential toxins that are naturally occurring in foods that do in fact cause everything from, from depression to possibly special needs conditions to triggering autoimmune events uh, to cancers. Uh, but when a person has an adverse reaction to a food, the first thing they think of is what? They're allergic to it. You may be having a reaction to something that has nothing to do with, the, uh, with anything allergic at all. It may have one of those toxins that I just mentioned, the, the tomatine or the sorolins or the glycoalkaloids, just to name a few. And it takes a good health history, it takes the right laboratory testing and some common sense to put it all together. And listen to this. So the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, um, establishes tolerances to what they deem unavoidable contaminants. That is, a food might contain a toxin, like, let's say, mercury. And if the presence of that toxin is unavoidable, like it is in fish, and if it's under the level tolerated based on someone eating it and they, their head doesn't explode, the food is not considered to be unsafe by the FDA. Because establishing a tolerance requires an extensive rulemaking process. So the, a, the FDA has adapted the use of what they call action levels, which are non-binding guidelines for different food ingredients, uh, which describe their potential uh, toxicity. For years, by the way, the recommended amount of fish consumption during the course of a week for a pregnant woman has gone from like four days to three days to two days to now no fish. And if you're a young child with a smaller body, you will bioaccumulate an adult level of toxin and that can cause who knows what else. But if the amount of mercury in that fish is unavoidable as the level of mercury increases in a the amount of mercury in the fish bioaccumulates. And if that becomes the new normal of mercury, that becomes an unavoidable contaminant, which now is considered generally safe.
Can you believe the thinking of the FDA regarding this? And then, once again, you're exposed to some fish, some mercury, some arsenic, other toxins from different areas of your life, and then you get some health problem. And that health problem is caused by bioaccumulation of a number of things. But quite honestly, most people that I see still seem to misinterpret their health problems as something far too simple. Like I said earlier, a simple food allergen, or they'll call it fibromyalgia, which could, the symptoms of fibromyalgia could be the result of any number of bioaccumulated toxins. So the area of environmental toxins and the relative toxicity for you as an individual is something that medicine has completely uh, dropped the ball on, even the area of toxicology and medicine. These are very bright people who are looking at examples of toxicity in the extreme, even though we know, and their own toxicology books say, that toxicity can be just as severe when it's a smaller amount bioaccumulated over a long period of time. And just to give you a little bit of practical information here that if you are concerned about uh, toxins in fish such as mercury uh, and aluminum and arsenic, I find those levels, uh, those metals there uh, quite often in fish uh, and uh, the uh, laboratory tests of my patients, we would use N-acetylcysteine or NAC, one of the best chelators of metals and detoxifiers of arsenic. Far better than EDTA or DMPS or DMSA, in my opinion, because when those other detoxifiers bind to mercury, they often bring the mercury into the brain and central nervous system. But NAC or N-acetylcysteine, you can find that, by the way, on, on blooddetective.com under the, uh, the supplements or the custom product section, is known to be very, very good for uh, these detoxification mechanisms and not causing further toxins. Also, N-acetylcysteine increases glutathione in the body. And glutathione, as you might know, is a very important tripeptide amino acid, which helps promote what's called phase two liver conjugation of toxins or binding or conjugating to various toxins like metals and toxins like arsenic and rendering them water-soluble so they can be excreted from the body. Also, lipoic acid is a very basic and important uh, detoxifier of lots of these different toxins I'll be mentioning throughout this show at a dose of between four and 800 or sometimes even 1,000 milligrams. Now, oftentimes, there'll be multiple toxins and multiple health problems from the toxins. So there won't be any one or two or three nutrients. A careful look at the diet and a careful rebalancing of what is a healthy diet for this person who might not tolerate, let's say, beans because they have certain toxins in them, should they be consuming? We'll talk about that a little bit later. You know, I I also want to mention that there are certain... Uh, food intolerances that are caused by either genetics or autoimmune problems. For example, there is a syndrome known as disaccharide intolerance, which is a type of sugar intolerance, that is precipitated by the consumption of sucrose, which is table sugar, and dextrins, other types of sugars. Uh, 
And the genetic causes are known as autosomal recessive conditions, and they cause a deficiency or a complete absence of certain enzymes uh, in the intestine of the person. And the person will consume sucrose and dextrins, and they will get horrific attacks, uh, abdominal pain characterized by bloating and diarrhea. And then there's another genetic condition known as favism or favism, which has to do with a genetic problem, an X, what they call an X-linked recessive trait problem, where there's low amounts of a specific enzyme. This is really important. The enzyme is called G6PD. And this is a really important enzyme regarding vitamin C. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. But this favism condition caused by this X-linked recessive trait causing low amounts of G6PD uh, can be precipitated when someone eats a food known as uh, broad beans. And what happens is the person eats these beans and they get what's known as a hemolytic anemia, meaning their red blood cells literally explode. They degenerate. They hemolysize. That's the hemolytic part, causing an anemia, which is deficiency of red blood cells just by the consumption of these foods. I've seen it before. There'll be this anemia, and you'll also see an increase in the bilirubin in the blood. This is why I've spent so many years, 28 years, perfecting my skill at reading and interpreting laboratory work. And one of the reasons why I did this is because in chiropractic school and medical school, we are taught lab, but it's not in any real detail. The amount of, of education given in medical schools are, uh, is very basic. And we're expected to learn this on our own over the course of time. That's true of a lot of technologies used in medicine, uh, even, even EKGs for the heart. Uh, there's no time spent on that in medical schools. You're just expected to learn it yourself. So when it comes to the nutrition area, it's a big problem. There's another condition where uh, a person might, that's called galactosemia. And when a person eats any food that contains galactose, sugary foods, uh, this autosomal problem will produce high levels of galactose in the blood. And this person can have um, high liver enzymes and what's known as a paddomegaly, large liver. They can even develop scarring and breakdown of the liver known as cirrhosis. They can get renal failure. It's, it's a horrific condition. Let me name one that you know very well, but it's called gluten intolerance. But let me just tell you about that G6PD enzyme above. So I said that low G6PD enzyme is, um, it, uh, it is involved in a condition known as favism which can cause hemolytic anemia. But if you have low levels of G6PD, you may never know it. You might be one of those people that were mildly anemic your whole life. Well, that could be a sign that you have G6PD deficiency. And if you have G6PD deficiency and you take more than about 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, it could seriously harm you. So we're talking about foods that due to genetic disorders can cause horrific health problems. These are so underappreciated in healthcare, even in the in natural healthcare industry, particularly for healthcare providers that don't have 
very detailed formal educations where they're taking detailed biochemistry, detailed laboratory work. You know, as a one of one of my degrees is as a, a dietitian nutritionist and as a certified nutritional specialist. So in the state of New York, those are the two of three uh, nutrition certifications that are regulated. Every other one is not. So the level of education is not going to be as good. But even in dietitian school, and when you get your certification as a certified nutrition specialist, those two that I have, and I have others, um, when, when they're not taught any lab. I never learned any lab as a dietitian or as a nutritionist. It's out of scope of practice. So there are nutritionists out there thinking or or passing themselves off as, as lab experts, and that is inappropriate. So let's talk about gluten intolerance. So we know that the causative food and glucose intolerance are at least wheat, barley, and other gluten-containing foods, too many to mention. And that gluten intolerance causes an autoimmune reaction. It's so funny to me, not like ha-ha funny, but how a gastroenterologist, for example, acknowledges that gluten can cause a real autoimmune disease. It could even cause your brain to shrink, uh, causing cerebellar atrophy. That's a real condition caused by gluten intake. But somehow they don't recognize that many, many other diseases can be triggered uh, by gluten. And the thing is that with gluten intolerance, which is genetic, what happens is there's a sensitivity to the protein in gluten called gliadin. And when a person consumes this, their immune system confuses the gliadin in the food with the proteins of the small intestine, causing a, a deterioration of the intestinal lining and the villi, which are the absorptive cells in gluten intolerance. But also, it can cross-react with the thyroid, causing Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or cross-match with the skin, causing dermatitis herpetiformis. The list goes on and on. And then, of course, there's lactose intolerance, and yet another example of food problems creating all kinds of health issues for people. And, and again, many of you have many of these combined, and you never know it. You were given some diagnosis that seems to fit your symptoms. Let me say that again. You're given a diagnosis that fits your symptoms, but not the cause or causes. And medicine tends to pat themselves on the back when they get the diagnosis right or when they think they're getting the diagnosis right. Did you know that 80% of medical diagnoses are, are absolutely wrong? Which means, in my mind, 100% of the treatments and drugs and procedures recommended for those 80% of wrong diagnoses are 100% wrong. And these are numbers from the New England Journal of Medicine that said that 80% of medical diagnoses are wrong. And that's what they recognize are wrong. Imagine what they're not recognizing or admitting that are wrong. Unbelievable. And you know, what a lot of other uh, gastroenterologists do not appreciate, although they learn this in medical school, there's something called, a, something called refractory sprue, which is a, in a reaction to a, the triggers in foods, just like celiac disease, wheat, barley, and rye, that is, if the barley is produced 
in a factory with the other gluten-containing grains because, as you may know, barley is not a gluten-containing grain. But this refractory sprue is autoimmune-triggered due to the exposure of, of the body to the gliadin protein. And if a person, uh, a person may have a normal-looking intestinal tract, small intestine, when the gastroenterologist does an endoscopy and sticks a tube down your mouth, and says, you're fine. You're obviously a head case, so you need to see someone and get an antidepressant or you have too much anxiety. And I'm not kidding when I tell you this. That is almost always what happens to people. If the gastroenterologist does not see damage to the small intestinal villi, then the per- patient's crazy. But there is refractory sprue. Let's talk a, little, a bit more about some other uh, con- concerns uh, that face us in terms of the diet. And they basically are the whole category of food allergens. So the most common of which are milk and eggs. There's fish, there's uh, uh, crustaceans like shellfish, uh, tree nuts, wheat, peanuts, soybeans. They account for about 90% of all food allergens in the United States. And the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act of, uh, I think it was 2004, and which became effective, I believe, in January 2006, began to require labeling of any product containing these ingredients or a protein derived from one of these offending foods or incidental additives or flavors derived from them to be labeled. So at least, thank goodness for that, we can look at a label and certain things we can see and avoid if we choose to. But Oftentimes, there, are, there is a lot of cross-contamination, and with the advent of genetically modified or GMOs, uh, we're going to have more deleterious reactions where we might create a strawberry that survives the frost better because we cross-breeded the strawberry genes with a salmon. Uh, and I'm not kidding. That's actually been done. So again, that's, that's another show. I wanted to speak for a moment about food-drug interactions. We have these different uh, enzymes in our bodies, mostly in our liver, really is what we're talking about. And these enzymes, they're also called transporters. What they do is they manage certain foods and they manage certain drugs. So you may be consuming certain foods. And if you're taking certain drugs at the same time, you may have adverse reactions to your drugs or... If you're taking drugs for a reason, you might have, you may not have the, uh, the intended effects that you want. So for example, there's an enzyme transporter known as CYP1A2. So CYP1A2 is this enzyme transporter in the liver. And if you like coffee or you have caffeine from any source, you will reduce the activity of that enzyme. And if you were taking clonazepine or imipramine, you may not get the effects that you want. So for those of you who don't know, uh, clonazepine is an antipsychotic medication. It's, it's used to treat schizophrenia. It's used for other conditions as well. It's said to help reduce the risk of suicidal behavior. I'm not saying it does this effectively. I'm simply saying if you take these medications and you, you drink coffee, you might affect uh, your metabolism of these medications adversely. And um, 
imipramine is an antidepressant and um, it, it's, it's used quite often in children to reduce uh, the tendency of, uh, for them to consider suicidal uh, behavior. But um, my point is I'm very, very tempted to go into the details of these medications. But once again, I think we'll need to save that for an upcoming show. So other foods that might interfere with antidepressants and antipsychotic medications would also be grape juice, uh, cruciferous vegetables, um, cooked meat, for example. Let's see, what's another one? Okay, uh, acetaminophen. So some people take Tylenol. So if you want the effects of Tylenol, but you eat Brussels sprouts, cabbage, watercress, or broccoli, you might interfere with a liver enzyme known as UGT and another one called GST that you need to properly manage the use of acetaminophen. So the amount of foods that interfere with medications that physicians and pharmacists do not tell patients is extraordinary. Not to mention there are many drug-nutrition interactions as well. So I just mentioned acetaminophen. Acetaminophen or Tylenol causes a deficiency of glutathione conjugation in the liver, which is an essential process for detoxifying acetaminophen. It's so well known that the nutrient N-acetylcysteine helps to offset this toxicity that it's used to both prevent and treat acetaminophen toxicity, which could be as bad as liver failure. So it's always important for me as, as the blood detective to look at all medications that my patients are taking and to make sure that there are no adverse food and or nutrient interactions or other drug-drug interactions. Let me give you another example of something good in food, you'd think, but can cause problems. So you've heard of selenium, the antioxidant, right? So selenium in grain, okay? So selenium in grains can, with increased consumption, can uh, cause what's known as selenosis. And selenosis can result in hair loss, uh, deformities of bones, and loss of nails, So I see all kinds of people, particularly women, that they have selenosis. They did not know it. They're popping biotin pills, thinking it's going to help their hair. Of course, it never does. Uh, And they never knew that they had too much selenium. And then you remove the selenium. Then you have to fix that person, nutritionally speaking. And then they may have a chance of growing their hair back and the health of their nails and other deformities may improve. But other symptoms of too much selenium are diarrhea, fatigue. Another giveaway symptom would be a garlic-like odor of the breath and the body, bodily secretions. Um, There's irritability, peripheral neuropathy, and the skin lesions. So selenium intake um, that's high enough to cause selenosis uh, have not um, yet been very well defined uh, in scientific journals because, once again, folks, the amount of selenium that can do this to a person varies based on the person. There is another naturally uh, formed substance which is a primary constituent of 
essential oils, uh, which are, of course, derived from a variety of plants. And it's called Thujone, T-H-U-J-O-N-E. So this Thujone biochemically is called a monoterpene ketone. So this chemical, this Thujone, that's found in various essential oils and various plants, it's, it's also a flavoring in alcoholic drinks and fragrances throughout the world, but it's potentially toxic. And the presence of the different types of it, what's called alpha or beta thujone in food and beverages, is regulated in several countries. So the thing is, if you're exposed to some of this, at one level, no problem. But a little bit of this, plus a little bit of mercury, plus a little bit of this and a little bit of that, then your liver is overburdened. And if you do not identify these things, what cause the toxic issues? There are different ways of detoxifying. The first way of detoxifying anything is to identify the source of the toxin or toxins. Even that I see missed very often. I see patients come with tests. Uh, they've seen other people. They've got all these toxic metals, for example, or other toxins. And I say, oh my goodness, it's a good thing you found this. Did you identify the sources? And they look at me like I have two heads. That never came up in conversation. So these the Jones are very, very toxic, uh, potentially, can interfere with all sorts of body symptoms, causing all sorts of symptoms, from fatigue to poor healing to uh, all sorts of problems with the central and peripheral nervous system, and of course the liver. And the and the way that you detoxify this thujone has to focus upon the specific liver enzyme that it overwhelms. So this thujone chemical overwhelms a certain enzyme in the liver known as CYP450. So CYP450 is a glucuronidation enzyme that is overwhelmed with these toxins. And each of these enzymes, folks, requires a specific set of nutrients. So if you have chronic symptoms and you've taken a lot of what seem like the right nutrients and eaten the right foods, well, guess again, you might want to look more carefully because some of these healthy foods have a lot of toxins. You know, there's something called prussic or uh, prussic acid. Yes, that's what it's called in cherry, apple and peach pits. And these are really toxic because First of all, prussic acid is also known as uh, hydrocyanic acid and hydrogen cyanide or just cyanide. And this stuff is in the leaves and the cherry and the apple and the peach. It's in oak moss and other plants. And um, again, very toxic stuff. And some of the, the clinical signs of prussic poisoning include rapid breathing and trembling and coordination and in extreme cases, respiratory and cardiac arrest. So, so many people are eating these things, they don't know it, and they've got these symptoms, and they never know what it's from. I also think it's very important to realize, too, that the prussic acid, again, it's a type of it's cyanide, also can cause demyelination of the optic, auditory, and peripheral nerve tracts in the body. So, that can look like multiple sclerosis. That can mimic Lyme disease demyelination. Yep, you heard it right. So this prussic acid cyanide is, you know, found in flavoring ingredients. It's limited to 25 parts per million in, in cherry pits, for example. And again, it's limited because that seems to be a tolerance, a tolerant dose. But who is to say that? 
anyone listening to this show on this station already seems to know more than toxicologists and those people at the FDA and other governmental agencies that are setting the guidelines for what is safe, a safe amount of something. The bioaccumulation of multiple toxins is not considered. Let's go to another one, St. John's wort. Hypericum perforatum, it's called. That's an herb thought to alleviate symptoms of depression and it's standardized extracts of St. John's wort you can buy in health food stores, for example. The major antidepressant uh, constituent in St. John's wort are thought to be the, uh, hi, the uh, hyperforin and the hypericin. And the mechanisms about how those active ingredients work are not fully understood, but I, I believe personally they're involved in the inhibition of uh, serotonin reuptake, similar to conventional antidepressant medications. But if you are taking several, let's say, antidepressants or SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibiting drugs, or just one of those drugs, and you're taking St. John's wort, and maybe you're taking GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, or maybe you're also taking melatonin, you put your risk, yourself at risk for what's known as a, a serotonin syndrome, which is a potentially life-threatening elevation in serotonin in the central nervous system. So once again, when people say to me, can nutrients harm you? I say, absolutely. It depends on their amount in a particular individual, in a particular circumstance, which includes but is not limited to what other medications they may be taking, what other nutrients they may be taking. Even the timing of foods can affect the toxicity of them. For those of you who are just joining us, my name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. We're talking about poisons in our foods or in our lives, just poisons that we are exposed to every day and they're not necessarily labeled as poisons or not appreciated as poisons. I also want to remind everyone to uh, make a note on your calendars to RSVP for my grand, my uh, grand opening event of my brand new office in uh, Katona, New York on October 26th at um, 3.30 going to 6.30 p.m. So you need to RSVP on the website. Go to either blooddetective.com and on the homepage you'll see the RSVP announcement or you can also go to intmedny.com. That's intmedny.com. You'll also see the grand opening announcement on the homepage as RSVP right there. If you're going to bring friends, let us know because we'll have lots of delicious vegan and vegetarian foods. You'll be able to look at all of the advanced technologies, meet like-minded people. Just have a great time. I'd love to meet you there personally. Now back to St. John's Wort. If you take too much of this stuff, consumption in humans of St. John's Wort can result in what's called photosensitization, where you just can't stand lights, light, similar to what happens in migraine sufferers. And also, if the doses are high enough, we're talking liver damage from St. John's wort. Unbelievable. Now, let's talk about goitrogens. These are fascinating. So certain raw foods have been found to contain substances that suppress the function of the thyroid by interfering with the uptake of iodine, an essential nutrient in growth, uh, cognitive function, and hormonal balance. So a lack of functional iodine is known to result in cognitive deficiencies. A, or I should say the decrease in iodine uptake 
from these goitrogen foods, I'll define them in a minute. So you need to understand this. The decrease in iodine uptake causes a thyroid gland to enlarge, forming a goiter. Foods that have been identified as goitrogen foods include the ones that block iodine, which can mess up your thyroid, which are supposedly healthy, are spinach, cassava, peanuts, soybeans, strawberries, sweet potatoes, peaches, pears, and vegetables in the brassica genus of foods, which include broccoli and Brussels sprouts, uh, cabbage, what else? Canola, cauliflower, mustard greens, uh, radishes, uh, rapeseed. So goiter has been attributed to the consumption of large quantities of uncooked kale and also cabbage. So all of these foods, so many of these foods have anti-cancer effects. They're good for autoimmune disease. And people say to me, how are they unhealthy? A food is healthy or not, depending on the circumstance, right? A food is toxic or not, depending on the circumstances and the dose. Correct, folks? Right. So this is a very confusing part of natural health care, where people are constantly saying to me, Dr. Wald, I eat a healthy diet. I don't know why I don't feel well. And they consume a bunch of these foods, folks, that bind to iodine, which mess up their thyroids. Foods like vegetables, <laughs> or they consume too much selenium, or they drink too much water and get cardiac arrhythmias. I really hope you listen to the show again because I've not ever heard this topic covered to this extent, particularly for those of you out there that think that you are eating a healthy diet that's clean as can be. There is no clean as can be unless it's clean as can be for you. You might be eating beans or non-gluten grains that have chemicals that are toxic to you. Well, back to these goitrogenic foods. So cooking, you know, high temperatures can inactivate some goitrogenic substances. But you never know what you're getting. So depending upon your health situation, if you do have hypothyroidism, whether you're on medication or not, changes whether or not you need to eliminate some of these potential goitrogens. You notice I said potential goitrogens or goitrogenic foods or not. So once again, the myth of the I eat a clean diet when there isn't a food you can name that at some amount or another may not be potentially toxic in a person given how much is eaten and other circumstances, including what medications the person might take, might be taking, what medications, uh, I'm sorry, dosing, what nutrient doses, does that person exercise or not, what's their sleep like, what's their water intake like, all of these things, including genetics and other factors that affect how well the body detoxifies these different types of agents. And once again, folks, there is no one or two ways you're going to detox all these toxins. There is no weekend warrior detox program that is going to be specific enough necessarily to identify and to target the types of toxins that you might be sensitive to. The first step as a blood detective is to identify your diet, to look at the details of the diet relative to your symptoms. To your symptoms. And I 
need to know or any nutritional practitioner that you go to must have knowledge and potential toxins of all of these so-called healthy foods so we can figure out what enzyme systems are affected and how they are normally or ideally, I should say, supported nutritionally. And I, I think I also would be irresponsible not to emphasize to you that one of the most common foods that interferes with medications you might be taking would be citrus fruits, but particularly grapefruits. Look that one up. Here's one you may not have thought about, and it's oxalic acid or oxalate. And uh, rhubarb is a source of oxalic acid, and I'll talk about some other foods that are as well. But most oxalic acid or oxalate is generally found in rhubarb. There's also some in tea and spinach, parsley. Those are some of the major sources. And uh, also it can be found in uh, broccoli and asparagus, uh, Brussels sprouts, uh, collards, lettuce, celery, cabbage. I mean, there's a long list actually. Cauliflower, turnips, let me think, uh, peas, beets, coffee, cocoa, beans, potatoes, berries, carrots, all of those foods have oxalate. Now, oxalate is an organic acid and it binds to calcium and other minerals. It binds to calcium and minerals, making them insoluble. That means it decreases the bioavailability, the usability of minerals like calcium in the body. Ingestion of foods that contain high concentrations of these oxalates may decrease bone growth, promote kidney stones. They could be renal or kidney toxic. They could result in symptoms such as vomiting, diarrhea, convulsions, coma, even impaired blood clotting because things like convulsions, coma, and blood clotting, they involve, they, they involve calcium. So improper use of calcium and binding of calcium can produce blood clotting problems, convulsions. So probably the significant role of oxalate uh, is kidney stone development. And that is, uh, in most kidney stones, 65% of kidney stones are calcium oxalate. And most physicians do seem to acknowledge that calcium oxalate is an issue in kidney stones. You know, but what's interesting is because approximately 4.5 grams of rhubarb leaves, for example, would have to be ingested by you to, to cause a lethal dose, it's basically not considered a toxic problem, oxalates in foods, because most people don't eat that much. But some people do. And some people may not need to eat that much. Some people may find that far lower amounts of these different types of oxalate foods might create not just, folks, not just improper use of calcium by causing stones like kidney stones, but the binding of calcium which forms stones can also be related to the hardening of arteries, which is also calcium accumulation. Oxalates have been linked to atherosclerosis. They've also been linked to osteoporosis and osteopenia, which are different extents of bone loss, and even breast cancer, which is known to frequently be precipitated by or preceded by calcium breast cysts. So the consumption of all those healthy foods I mentioned, 
that have oxalate could actually be increasing a risk of breast cancer, increasing a risk of blood clots, increasing your risk of heart disease, increasing your risk of breast cancer, all from that wonderfully clean diet that you've been consuming. If you have some of these health problems that are associated with these naturally occurring potential toxins, which are thought to be safe unless you eat an amount that your body doesn't like, might actually be the cause of your problems in the first place. I'm just going to describe one more potential toxin in foods, which in a food which might be toxic to you, phytates and phytic acid. So phytic acid is also called phytate, and it's found in bran and germ and many uh, uh, plant seeds and in grains, legumes, and nuts. And phytic acid is, is a simple sugar, and it's a dietary source of phosphorus. And we know that it's an effective chelator, meaning it binds to zinc, uh, copper, let me see, iron, magnesium, and calcium. So you might be consuming some of this uh, phytic acid in, in these various foods, again, legumes, nuts, and various plant seeds and grains, and you might be chronically iron anemic. You might have osteoporosis because of the binding of calcium. You might have a reduced immune system to the binding of zinc. You might have a copper-induced iron deficiency anemia by the binding of copper. And copper is also needed to form myelin in the body, in the nervous system, which is protective at one amount, but at another amount, copper is quite toxic. And these phytates, these phytic acids, they also bind to magnesium. And magnesium is required, is required for over 500 different enzymes. It's the most abundant mineral in the nervous system. It's needed for the relaxation of blood vessels. It's a major antioxidant. Well, we're going to have to leave it here. I hope you got something out of the fact that your clean diet may not be so clean. It may have toxins that are toxic to you and might actually be causing your clean diet, your health problems. So my name is Dr. Michael Wald. You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Once again, RSVP for the October 26th event of the grand opening of my new office in Katona, New York. That's just one hour north of New York City by the, um, grand, from Grand Central to, on the Metro North or a car ride, one hour, uh, by going to my website at intmedny.com, RSVPing. Again, that's October 26th from 3.30 to, to 6.30. I hope to meet you there in person. Enjoy the festivities. Thanks, everyone. Show you.